everybody doing? Fantastic, fantastic. Man, who did everybody forget to tell you it's Memorial Day weekend? You're not supposed to be here. <laughs> That's always been kind of a joke. Actually, I was on a couple of uh, church Facebook pages just yesterday, and they were talking about how everybody was getting ready to mourn the loss of most of their people today. You guys are not those people. Give yourselves a big hand. That's awesome. That's incredible. I am, I'm so thankful to be here today, man. Did the band knock it out of the park on that last song or what? I mean, come on. That was awesome. They did such a great job. This is an amazing church because it is so talented. There are so many people with so much talent, and I love being a, the former worship minister here, looking at that and going, man, that's all because of me. <laughs> kidding. I'm totally kidding. No, it is awesome, though, to see that, that, they, that we've got such a group of talented people, and uh, it really makes Dave's job a whole lot easier. If you talk to him about it, he will tell you having all this talent is such a blessing. Um, I can't tell you how excited I am about preaching today. Um, it, we're in the middle of a series called Visible, and in the series we're just talking about the fruit of the Spirit. And uh, I was really excited about today's message until I saw that I was preaching on goodness. That's a hard topic to preach on. <laughs> and I remember looking at Dave and saying, man, you picked a hard one for me. And he goes, good luck. <laughs> just smiled real big at me. Um, I mean, he's, he's our Pope of preaching, so I thought that he would be able to, you know, Help me out on that. But the problem with the word like goodness is that there are so many definitions for what that is. So I did what any good preacher would do. I got into Webster's Dictionary and looked up the definition of goodness. And this is what I got right here. The quality or state of being good. Yeah, that helped. No good at all. So I decided I was going to look up good so I could understand goodness. And so uh, good has one of the largest entries in the Webster's Dictionary. If you look at it online, it scrolls down for quite some time. It just keeps going and going and going. It's one of the very few words that's a noun, an adverb, and an adjective. So that's way too much info. So I decided to forget the dictionary. The dictionary is not going to help me. So I moved past that. And that's when I turned to you guys on Facebook, and I posted in Catalyst Life that I would like to get some of your definitions of what goodness is, and you guys did not fail me. Of course, the first statements we had were all the food statements, like this, uh, a scotch egg, that's goodness, um, always doing the right thing, two double stuffed Oreos and a frosty cold ale ate one, Bud Burdett thinks it's butter pecan ice cream, but Peggy Sherwood would argue that it's Spalding Donuts. Now, there were the obvious answers, too, that came up. Um, if you go ahead and go to the next one here, it says, the act of being morally good. Thanks, Adam. Um, and the next one, the opposite of badness. That's from a former elder. Um, then there was this really sweet answer that led right back to food. When I walk in from work and hear my kids scream, Dad, that's good stuff. Well, and a big old bowl of Captain Crunch as well. I think we're missing something here. Um, we also had some really great answers, just short, to-the-point answers like this. Um, doing kind deeds for others. Humble love in action. Doing what's right when no one is watching. And undeserved kindness. Definitely good definitions of good. But there was one answer that really caught my eye, and that was uh, from Alyssa Ryan. She said, I think of God. I think of his goodness and how he wants the best for me because God is good. I know that his plans for me are always good. And when I think of a person who is just a good person, I think of someone who never has ill intent. I guess goodness would be the absence of evil. What a great answer, huh? Great answer for that. that 
the part of that that really stuck out in my head was, because God is good, I know that his plans for me are always good. See, we're going to come back to that in just a little bit. Our main thing today is goodness is defined by God's will and not the world's standards. One of the biggest things that we all seem to do is define goodness by our terms on our, or our life experience or by what happens when we define goodness in God's way instead. What happens when we consider what God considers good? What if we simply look to God's word to define what goodness is? Um, you hear all the time, he's a good man or they're good people, but what does that mean exactly? Um, if we look at it from the world's standards, what is good? So I asked the question, what does it mean to be good by the world's standards? The very first thing I decided was, be kind. I would dare say that kindness is something that anyone would think would make a good person. Last week, Dave talked about kindness. It's something we can all agree on. A good person would definitely be kind. Another thing would be accepting of all beliefs. Now, in today's world, uh, so many people want to believe that what's good for you is good for you and what's good for me is good for me. But if you read the Bible, you see a very different narrative on that one. See, in John 14, 6, Christ says, I am the way, the truth, and the life, and no one comes to the Father except through me. In other words, without Christ, we have to believe that what's good for us is good for everybody. See, that also lights a fire under our backsides a little bit and says that we need to tell others about Christ. See, you can always accept people, but by no means do you have to accept what they believe. The next one would be never talk about politics or religion. Never talk about politics or religion. No two things can divide a room quicker than politics and religion, and most don't want you talking about either one. Unfortunately, like David said last week, if you were, if you were here, um, if we aren't sharing our faith and talking about Jesus, we're really, doing, we're really doing anything at all to help further the kingdom. People need to hear about Christ. So we need to talk about our religion. We need to talk about our faith. The fourth thing, make a decent living and take care of your family. Um, I think making a decent living and taking care of your family are good things, but I don't know necessarily that that makes you a good person. But by the world standards, that seems to be something that other people would say. The last thing was do nice things. Good people do nice things, right? I don't think any of us are going to argue about that. Basically, what the world sees as good is don't rock the boat. And the world will see you as a nice person. Don't be overly convicted. Don't allow yourself to be poisoned by religious rhetoric. And you will be a good person. Now, maybe I'm crazy, but this list feels empty to me. It's got a few nice points, but it just really feels incomplete. So how do we find something that defines good that really means good? I think we have to go to God's Word. There's no other place with the authority to give us a true definition of the word good. So what I want you to do today is I want you to turn in your Bibles or your phones or your tablets or whatever smart thing you have to Romans chapter 12. We're going to be spending the rest of our time in that book, in that chapter today. Um, if you're using the, the Bible app, uh, you can click on the More tab in the bottom right-hand corner and go to the Events page. And uh, our church should pop up on that. You can actually keep up with the points in the sermon and what we're doing this whole time. So if you want to click on that, go ahead and go there. We're going to start off reading Romans chapter 12, verse 2. Usually you start in 1. Today we're going to start in 2. It says, Do not conform to the pattern of this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. 
Then you will be able to test and approve God's will, his good, pleasing, and perfect will. Paul says right there that God's will is good. So if God's will is good and we are to be in God's will, then maybe that's where we need to find our definition of good. Instead of leaning on our own experiences or biases or wisdom, we should lean on this concept of God's will. So with that said, what does it mean to be good God's way? What does that mean? The entire chapter is about what good actually looks like. When you read through this, so we're going to break this down into five things. Five things that define good by God's standards. The very first thing is, give yourself up. In verse 1, he says, Therefore I urge you, brothers and sisters, in view of God's mercy, to offer your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and pleasing to God. This is your spiritual, true, and proper worship. I almost went to an old NIV version and said what I memorized as a student there. But uh, we all have control problems. We like to be in control, right? I honestly don't know anybody who's willing to turn the reins over all the time to somebody else. But that's exactly what God is calling us to do here. Um, when you sacrifice something, it's no longer yours. When we tithe, that money is to be used by God, and we offer ourselves as living sacrifices to God. That means we no longer hold on to our control. We now belong to Him, and His will suddenly becomes ours. In other words, our families, our careers, our finances, our future, they all belong to Him. Now listen, this may be one of the most difficult things for me to grasp in my own faith journey. Um, anyone who knows me really well knows I'm a bit of a control freak. And by a bit of a control freak, I mean I'm a freaking control freak. Okay? I like to make decisions. I like to lead. I like to have control over every situation. And it's really been in the last few years where God has taught me uh, the hard lessons about that. Namely, he's done that through the irrational, emotional responses of a toddler. <laughs> For those who know me, I have two children. They're born 11 months apart. That is not a, that is not a lie, 11 months apart. Um, one is two, the other is one. Oh, and uh, I'm 45 years old because who really wants to sleep in their 40s? Um, <laughs> just in the past month, my daughter fell apart because I took a book away from her. She was literally eating it. I mean eating it. In her mouth, chewing on it, swallowing pieces of her book. Um, I kept saying, stop eating your book. But she never stopped. And <laughs> parents, how many things do you say to your children that you never thought you would ever say in your lifetime to any human being? Because I can promise you, saying to your child, stop eating your book was not in any parenting blog that I ever read before I had kids, but, but that's what I'm dealing with. It didn't matter what I said. Apparently, the book was delicious. Um, I almost took a bite out of it myself because I'm thinking, man, if it's that good, maybe I need to try this. My daughter has parts of a bubble guppies book now in her belly. So, um, But it's in these moments that God's looking down on me, and he's just saying, I told you being a control freak will drive you nuts. I've, I've learned that we can teach our, our children but simply controlling what they do isn't necessarily a science. My job isn't always to correct, but as parents, we do have to do a lot of that. Sometimes my job is just simply to love. And when I don't have control, I love. Many times letting go 
of the controls frees us up to actually do more for God and what he really wants to do in our lives. That's what a good person looks like. The second thing we pick up from Romans 12 is that we need to practice humility. Um, If we pick up in the verses 3 through 5, he says, For by the grace given me, I say to every one of you, do not think of yourselves more highly than you ought, but rather think of yourself with sober judgment in accordance with the faith God has distributed to each of you. For just as each of us has one body with many members, and these members do not all have the same function, so in Christ we, though many, form one body, and each member belongs to all of the others. I think humility is one of those uh, phrases that we really get screwed up in the church sometimes. We tend to think that humility is lowering ourselves. I don't believe that at all. I believe that humility is when we raise others up. I mean, let's be honest. It's it's seeing people as equal to you. How do you think people feel when you say you're going to lower yourself to their level? That's not valuing people. Don't devalue yourself. Value others higher. Um... I've got some news. Nobody wants to feel like that. They don't want to feel like they've been, they've been put down to a lower level. When we value others as equals, we stop seeing ourselves as better. We begin to see ourselves as part of a bigger picture. Um, everyone has a part to play in a much bigger story, and you start to realize what your part is in that when you practice humility. Unfortunately, we've created this narrative in America and even in the church at times where the Bible is your story and how God fits into your story. Um, You're the star. I've got news for you. That's not how it works. I'm going to be a little bit of a bubble uh, bubble burster right now. It doesn't work like that. Everybody in this room is not your supporting cast. We're all part of something bigger. See, the Bible isn't your story. It's not my story. It's about his greatness. It's God's story. It's his greatness, his mercy, his bride, his son. And we get to play a part in that story. We get to be inserted into the greatest story ever told. Do we have it? This is going to be really off this. How many, how many Walking Dead fans do we have in here? Are you willing to admit to it right now? We've got, we got a few of you. Okay. <clears throat> a couple years ago, a friend of mine got to be a zombie in The Walking Dead. Uh, She got to sit through an hour of makeup, she put on a real Hollywood costume, and she got to practice her moaning skills, because that's really important when you're a zombie. Um, Not only that, but she got to be front and center during one of the biggest scenes of the year. Funny thing, though, she hadn't told her friends about it, we would have never known she was even there. But that was okay to her, because she got to play a part in her favorite show, Without dozens of people like her, that show wouldn't have been nearly as good. She didn't need the recognition. She just wanted to be part of the story. Are you okay with being part of a story? Or do you always have to be the star? See, when we understand that we live for God and that God doesn't exist for us, it's then and only then that we experience humility. We finally get that we aren't devaluing ourselves because God values us. Instead, we're just valuing God more. And we're placing more value on those around us as well. Imagine living in a world where people stop looking down on or talking down to each other. If it's going to start anywhere, it probably needs to start in the church. Because that's what good people look like. 
Next up, Paul tells us to use our gifts. Verses 6 through 8, he says, When we have different gifts, according to the grace given to each of us, if your gift is prophesying, then prophesy in accordance with your faith. If it's serving, then serve. If it's teaching, then teach. If it's to encourage, then give encouragement. If it's giving, then give generously. If it's to lead, do it diligently. If it's to show mercy, do it cheerfully. Nobody in this room is lacking in gifts. Everyone in this room has a gift to give to God. Every single person in here, it's a talent, an ability. Maybe it's a home that's worth sharing with others. Regardless of what that gift is, we should never hold it back from God at any point. God doesn't do anything accidentally. He always has purpose behind his actions, and you are no accident. And I'm going to say that again. You're not an accident. God blessed you with certain gifts that he didn't bless others with. And it's your responsibility to use that gift for his glory. Um, See, if you don't get these first two things we talked about, if you don't get the first two, if you can't understand um, what it means to be humble and to give yourself up, you're really going to struggle with using your gifts. Because when we use our gifts for God, it's not for our benefit, it's for his And so we have to understand that first. When we are willing to do the other two, using our gifts for him will suddenly become like breathing. We're going to see what God has given us, and we're going to want to give that back immediately. Leaders are going to lead. Musicians are going to join the worship team. Teachers are going to find a place to teach in the church. But it goes beyond these walls, too. See, caring people will open their doors to foster children. People passionate for spreading the gospel will serve others overseas and in their local communities. People with a rough background will work with those going through the same things. I mean, think about it. Just think about it. Children having a home with parents that they've never had before. The gospel being spread throughout the world. Men and women being freed from the chains of addiction. These things are only possible through using the gifts that God has given you. If you aren't using your gifts, there's a good chance that somebody's hurting because of it. God has blessed you with those gifts. And it's our responsibility to bless him through using those gifts for his glory. Because good people do that. In verses 9 through 16 we read, Love must be sincere. Hate what is evil. Cling to what is good. Be devoted to one another in love. Honor one another above yourselves. Never be lacking in zeal, but keep your spiritual fervor, serving the Lord. Be joyful in hope, patient in affliction, faithful in prayer. Share with the Lord's people who are in need. Practice hospitality. Bless those who persecute you. Bless and do not curse. Rejoice with those who rejoice. Mourn with those who mourn. Live in harmony with one another. Do not be proud, but be willing to associate with people of low position. Do not be conceited. It's here where Paul tells us to love sincerely. See, love is a tricky word in society these days. People are quick to use it, and it's almost always used as an emotion. But this is not what love is in God's world. Love is a verb. It's an action. It's something you do. And it's a word that comes down to choice. Not butterflies and Cupid's arrow. They don't play any part in this. When we read through these verses, we see these words that Paul uses to describe what sincere love really is. Listen to these words. 
uh, devoted, honor, zeal, fervor, serving, joyful, patient, faithful, sharing, hospitality, blessing, rejoicing, mourning, harmony, and not being conceited. This is sincere love. And if we can't be living sacrifices, practice humility, and use our gifts, we can't love sincerely because you can't do these things if those other three things don't exist. These things are stacking for a reason. See, they need each other. This is what good people do. We need each other, and we need to sincerely love. I mean, marriage is a really rough wilderness to hike. There are days when you don't always like each other. There are days when you'd rather be in a different room than your spouse. And if love was just an emotion, that means at any time we can bail. We don't need to hang around because we're led by our emotion. However, when love becomes a choice that we're going to see through, we see things differently. We know that these moments are only for a time, and we must be committed to living out that choice we made to love the other. So let me ask you a question. In your marriage, are you being devoted, honoring, zealous, a servant, joyful, patient, faithful, sharing, hospitable, a blessing, rejoicing, mourning with them when they need it, living in harmony or being conce- or not being conceited? Or are you that kid on the basketball court who gets mad when things don't go his way and he takes his ball and he leaves? Because when we make that choice to love, we do those other things. This isn't just in marriage either. This is at work. This is in friendships. This is in your family. And that's absolutely here in the church. Petty arguments and feuds have no place in our lives, and they definitely have no place in the church. God's people, or good people, don't do that. Hate should never be a defining measure of a believer, but sincere love should. And if we love sincerely, then we're going to go into what I consider the hardest part of this whole thing, and that's verses 17 through 21, where he says, Do not repay anyone evil for evil. Be careful what you do, that what you do is right in the eyes of everyone. If it is possible, as far as it depends on you, live at peace with everyone. Do not take revenge, my dear friends, but leave room for God's wrath, for it is written, it is mine to avenge, I will repay, says the Lord. On the contrary, if your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he is thirsty, give him something to drink. In doing this, you will heap burning coals on his head. Do not become overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. Basically, Paul's telling us to love our enemies. I know somebody out here right now is going to, now you've gone and done it, John. I was with you right up until this part. How am I supposed to love someone who wants nothing more to do than to harm me? How am I supposed to love someone who doesn't care about me? How am I supposed to love someone who wants nothing more than for me to be miserable? Well, the answer's simple. God still loves us. We put his son on a cross. We go about our days most times only worrying about ourselves, and we tend to have this it's easier to ask for forgiveness than permission mindset when it comes to our sin. But God still loves us. See, it's not our job to respond to evil with evil. It's our job to respond to evil with love. We don't take revenge. We love. Something that all of us forget, myself included, is that we are all created by God. And God loves his creation. 
He loves his creation. He sees all of us as his. And he's not a fan of his creation being treated poorly. When we learn to love our enemies and forgive those who do evil against us, we can also learn to heal. I want to read you the story of Mary Johnson and the murder of her son, Laramian. I'm just going to read this to you straight from an article that I read online. And I just want you to listen along. It says, that was it. Laramian was gone, Mary Johnson said. I'll never see him graduate. I'll never see him married, him have children. It seems unnatural for a parent to bury their child. On February 12, 1993, Mary Johnson's only son, Laramian, was killed by four gunshots during a gang-related altercation. With the help of eyewitnesses, detectives found a prime suspect two days later. I think hatred began to set in right then, Mary said. During a police investigation, 16-year-old O'Shea Israel confessed to killing Laramian. After two years of hearing and appeals, he was tried as an adult and convicted of second-degree murder. Mary addressed him during her impact statement in court. I said, you know what? If my son had taken your life, I would, expect to, I would have expected him to pay the cost, Mary said. And then I ended up telling him that I forgave him. The word says in order to be forgiven, you must forgive. So I said, okay, I have to tell him. But I wanted him locked up and caged because he was an animal, and that's what he deserved. O'Shea was sentenced to 25 years in prison. The grieving, the grieving process, I think it began for me after the trial, Mary said. Wave after wave after wave, the tsunami of just that stuff, hatred. Here I am, a Christian woman, and I hated a 16-year-old boy. And I never, ever thought I would be put back together. After the trial, Mary went through the motions of life. She visited friends and stayed active in her church, but it would be 10 long years before her emotional turmoil would end. In 2004, her pastor asked her to teach a class on forgiveness. As she studied the class book, Mary says she took a hard look at her heart. I'm hearing, Mary, you need to repent. You need to repent for all those things that you've said about this young man, all these feelings that you've had for him. And I'm like, I have to have these feelings. Then I heard, Mary, pray for him like you pray for yourself. Okay. So I prayed for him like I pray for myself. Then I heard every time his name comes up, every time you hear it within yourself say, I choose to forgive. So I repented and I really believe it was a true repentance. It was for real. She said again, it was for real. As Mary started to change, so did the person she was praying for. It's, I started coming into myself, O'Shea Israel said. I started maturing. With maturity, I decided I wanted to hold myself accountable and be responsible for my actions. In 2005, 13 years, 12 years later, Mary took another courageous step toward healing. She contacted the Department of Corrections and requested a face-to-face -face meeting with O'Shea. I have to make sure I've truly forgiven him and I don't have all that hatred, Mary said. O'Shea said, I can honestly say that from that moment, I walked in the room and the energy was, was like peaceful. We had a conversation. He admitted what he had done. He told me I could have communicated that night. Things would have been different, Mary said. 
She asked a lot of questions about myself and my life, and it showed that she was interested in getting to know the person O'Shea said. I said, look, I told you in court that I forgave you, but today from the bottom of my heart, I want you to know that I forgive you, Mary said. And he was like, ma'am, how can you do that? I said, because of who is in me. Because of who is in me. Mary and O'Shea continued to meet. And they eventually began speaking in prisons, or in prisons about forgiveness and reconciliation. The more and more we spoke, the more and more our bond started to grow, O'Shea said. And Mary has turned into one of my biggest supporters. She worries about me even when I'm not worried about myself. And that is something a mother does. O'Shea was released from prison in 2010. And Mary arranged his homecoming party. I walked in and saw all of these people that I don't know who only knew of me because of the pain and the hurt I caused, but I walk in and get hugs. I walk in and get smiles, O'Shea said. That's another part of the forgiveness. The community forgave me. Her friends were able to forgive me. I want you to check this picture out. Today, O'Shea and Mary are next door neighbors. They speak all over the country about the power of forgiveness. I'm so grateful for who I am today in God that I am not that person that I used to be full of all that junk, Mary said. Being on the other side of forgiveness is important in my life because it made me free enough to be myself, O'Shea said. I can really live and enjoy life. I can enjoy people. I can enjoy being home. I can enjoy laughing. Outside of that, I've got a huge family now. See, guys, when Paul says that, that loving your enemies will heap burning coals on their heads, he's quoting a passage from Proverbs 25, verses 21 and 22. Heaping burning coals was signifying cleansing or repentance. When we love our enemies, they see the love of Christ. When we love our enemies, we're opening doors to repentance. When we love our enemies, the opportunity to change for them becomes so much more real. Mary understood this, and we need to understand it. Because this is what good people do. Guys, imagine a world where people were serving God selflessly, loving each other sincerely, and treating their enemies with love and grace. Our definitions of goodness are nice, but God's definition of goodness could change the world. So today, we all need to redefine what we call good and live under a standard that isn't defined by this world, but defined by Christ, because God is good. And it's our responsibility to be good as well, because when all is said and done, one thing remains, and that's the love, the unfailing love of our God. That love deserves our lives, our humility, our gifts, and our love, because that's what goodness is all about. Because goodness is defined by God's will and not the world's standards.